0: There's a lot of talk in the US and other countries at the moment about banning books and book censorship. This is an absolutely ridiculous notion, and this podcast and YouTube channel is 100% against the idea of book banning. It's an insane thing to do. But if your government is preventing you from accessing certain information through geo-blocking or government censorship, Surfshark VPN is here to help. With their No Borders feature, simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers, and read whatever you please without any governmental interference. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and read what you please without any censorship or geo-blocking. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes, and get a Cogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan, and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. I am recording this bit for the uh, second time because I had a huge power out and I lost all of my last recording. So, if um, at the moment I sound a little bit frustrated or when I'm at the end of the chapter and I'm doing the the outro, you think I'm sounding a little bit frustrated, it's because I am just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, so, we're, <laughs> we're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest today by Ken Kessie and... Um, Yeah, let's jump in. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cookies Nest, by Ken Kesey. Part 1. 12. There's a Monopoly game going on in the day room. They've been at it for three days. Houses and hotels everywhere. Two tables pushed together to take care of all the deeds and stacks of play money. May Murphy talked them into making the game interesting by paying a penny for every dollar the bank issues them. The Monopoly box is loaded with change. It's your roll, Cheswick. Hold the minute before he rolls. What the man need to do to buy some hotels? You need four houses on every lot of the same color, Martini. Now let's go, for Christ's sakes. Hold the minute. There's a flurry of money from that side of the table. Red and green and yellow bills, blowing in every direction you buying a hotel or you playing Happy New Year, for Christ's sakes? It's your dirty role, Cheswick. Snake eyes. Hoo-wee, Cheswicker. Where does that put you? That don't put you on my Marvin Gardens, by any chance. That don't mean you have to pay me... Let's see... Three hundred and fifty dollars? Burgered. What the mother think? All over the board. Martini. You've been seeing them other things all over the board for two days. No wonder I'm losing my ass. Mary Murphy, I don't see how you can concentrate with Martini sitting there, hallucinating a mile a minute. Jaswick, never you mind about Martini. He's doing real good. You just come on with that 350. Martini will take care of himself. Don't we get rent from him every time he lands one of his... things on our property? Hold the minute. There's so many of them. That's okay, Ma. You just keep us posted on whose property they land on. You're still a man with the dice, Cheswick. You rolled a double, so you roll again. That boy. Oh big six That takes me two chance. You have been elected chairman of the board. Pay every player Burger! Double Burgered Whose hotel is it here for Christ's sakes, on the Railroad? My friend, that, as anyone can see, is not a hotel. It's a depot. Now hold a minute. McMurphy surrounds his end of the table, moving cards, rearranging money, evening up his hotels. There's a $100 bill sticking out of the brim of his cap, like a press card. Mad money, he calls it. Scanlon, I believe it's your turn, buddy. Give me those dice. I'll blow this board to pieces. Here we go. level 11 count me over 11, Martini. Why, all right. Not that one, you crazy bastard. That's not my piece, that's my house. It's the same color. What's this little house doing on the electric company? That's a power station. Martini, those aren't dyes you're shaking. Let him be. What's the difference? Those are a couple of houses. Four! And Martini rolls a big, let me see, a big 19. Good going, Ma. That puts you... Where your piece, buddy? Why, here it is. He had it in his mouth, McMurphy. Excellent. That's two moves over the second and third biscuit pin, four moves to the board, which takes you on to Baltic Avenue, Martini. Your own and only property. How fortunate can man get, friends? Martin's been playing three days and lit on his property practically every time. Shut up and roll, Hardin. It's your turn. Harding gathers up the dice with his long fingers, feeling the smooth surface with his thumb, as if he was blind. The fingers are the same color as the dice, and look like they were carved by his other hand. The dice rattle in his hand as he shakes it. They tumble to a stop in front of McMurphy. Four Five. Six, seven. Tough luck, buddy. That's another of my vast holdings. You owe me... Two hundred dollars should about cover it. Pity. The game goes round and round to the rattle of dice and a shuffle of play money. There's long spells. Three days, years, when you can't see a thing. Know where you are, only by the speaker. Sounding overhead, like a bell buoy clanging in the fog. When I can't see, the guys are usually moving around, as unconcerned as though they don't notice so much as a mist in the air. I believe the fog affects their memory in some way. It doesn't affect mine. Even McMurphy doesn't even seem to know he's been fogged in. If he does, he makes sure not to let know that he's bothered by it. He's making sure none of the staff sees him bothered by anything. He knows that there's no better way in the world to aggravate somebody who's trying to make it hard for you than by acting like you're not bothered. He keeps up his high-class manners around the nurses and the black boys in spite of anything they might say to him, in spite of every trick they pull to get him to lose his temper. A couple of times, some stupid rule gets him mad, but he just makes himself act more polite and mannerly than ever till he begins to see how funny the whole thing is the rules, the disapproving looks they use to enforce the rules, the ways of talking to you like you're nothing but a three-year-old. And when he sees how funny it is, he goes to laughing. And this aggravates them to no end. He's safe as long as he can laugh, he thinks. And it works pretty fair. Just once he loses control and shows he's mad. And then it's not because of the black boys or the big nurse and something they did, because of the patience and something they didn't do. It happened at one of the group meetings. He got mad at the guys for acting too cagey, too chicken he called it. He'd been taking bets from all of them on the World Series coming up Friday. He had it in mind that they would get to watch the games on TV, even though they didn't come on during the regulation TV time. During the meeting a few days before, He asked if it wouldn't be okay if they did the cleaning work at night during TV time and watched the games during the afternoon. The nurse tells him no, which is about what he expected. She tells him how the schedule has been set up for a delicately balanced reason that would be thrown into turmoil by the switch of routines. This doesn't surprise him, coming from the nurse. What does surprise him is how the acutes act when he asks them what they think of the idea. Nobody says a thing. They're all sunk back out of sight, in little pockets of fog. I can barely see them. Now look here, he tells them, but they don't look. He's been waiting for somebody to say something, answer his question. Nobody acts like they heard it. Look here, damn it! he says when nobody moves. There's at least 12 of you guys I know myself got little personal interest who wins these games. Don't you guys care to watch them? I don't know, Mac, Scanlon finally says. I'm pretty used to seeing that six o'clock news. And if switching times would really mess up the schedule as bad as Miss Ratchet says, hell with the schedule. You can get back to the bloody schedule next week when the series is over. What do you say, buddies? Let's take a vote on watching the TV during the afternoon instead of at night. All those in favor. Aye, Cheswick calls out and gets to his feet. I mean, all those in favor raise their hands. Okay, all those in favor. Cheswick's hand comes up. Some of the other guys look around to see if there are any other fools. McMurphy can't believe it. Now, come on! What is this crap? I thought you guys could vote on policy and that sort of thing. Isn't that the way it is, Doc? The doctor nods without looking up. Okay, then. Now who wants to watch the games? Cheswick shoves his hand higher and glares around. Scanlon shakes his head and then raises his hand, keeping his elbow on the arm of the chair. And nobody else. McMurphy can't say a word. If that's settled, then, the nurse says, perhaps we should get on with the meeting. Yeah, he says. Slides down in his chair till the brim of his cap nearly touches his chest. Yeah, perhaps we should get on with the some bit maiden at that. Yeah, Cheswick says, giving all the guys a hard look and sitting down. Yeah, get on with the god bless maiden. He nods stiffly, then settles his big chin down on his chest, scowling. He's pleased to be sitting next to McMurphy, feeling brave like this. It's the first time Cheswick's ever had anyone along with him on his lost causes. After the meeting, McMurphy won't say a word to any of them. He's so mad and disgusted. It's Billy Bibbit who goes up to him. Some of us have b- been here for f- 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 five years, Randall. Billy says. He's got a magazine rolled up and is twisting it in his hands. And you can see the cigarette burns on the back of his hand. And some of us will be here maybe that much longer. Long after you're gone. Long after this World Series is over. And don't you see? He throws down his magazine and walks away. (sighs) What's the use of it anyway? May Murphy stares after him, that puzzled frown nodding his bleached eyebrows together again. He argues for the rest of the day with some of the other guys about why they didn't vote. But they don't want to talk about it, so he seems to give up. And doesn't say anything about it again till the day before the series starts. Here it is, Thursday, he says, sadly shaking his head. He's sitting on one of the tables in the tub room, with his feet on the chair, trying to spin his cap around on one finger. Other acutes mope about the room and try not to pay any attention to him. Nobody will play poker or blackjack with him for money anymore. After the patients wouldn't vote, he got mad and skinned them so bad at cards they're all so in debt they're scared to go any deeper. And they can't play for cigarettes because the nurse started making the men keep their cartons on the desk in the nurse's station, where she dolls them out one pack a day says for their health, but everyone knows it's to keep McMurphy from winning them all at cards. With no poker or blackjack, it's quiet in the tub room, just the sound of the speaker drifting in from the day room. It's so quiet you can hear the guy upstairs and disturbed climbing the wall, giving out the occasional signal, loo loo loo, a bored, uninterested sound, like a baby yells itself to sleep. Thursday, McMurphy says. yells the guy upstairs. That's Roller, Scanlon says, looking up at the ceiling. He don't want to pay any attention to McMurphy. Roller the squawker. He came through this ward a few years back. Wouldn't keep still to suit Miss Ratchet. Remember, Billy? Lou-lou-lou all the time, till I thought I'd go nuts. What they should do with that whole bunch of dingbacks up there is to toss a couple of grenades in the dorm. They're no use to anybody. And tomorrow is Friday. McMurphy says. He won't let Scanlan change the subject. Yeah, Cheswick says, scowling around the room. Tomorrow is Friday. Harding turns a page of his magazine. And that'll make nearly a week our friend McMurphy has been with us without succeeding in throwing over the government. Is that what you're saying, Cheswickle? Lord, to think of the chasm of apathy into which we have fallen. A shame. Pitiful shame. Hell with that, McMurphy says. What Cheswick means is that the first series game is going to be played on TV tomorrow. And what are we going to be doing? Mopping up this damn nursery again. Yeah, Cheswick says. Oh, Mother Ratchet's therapeutic nursery. Against the wall of the tub room, I get a feeling like a spy. The mop handle in my hand is made of metal instead of wood. Metal's a better conductor, and it's hollow. There's plenty of room inside to hide a miniature microphone. If the big nurse is hearing this, she'll really get Cheswick. I take a hard ball of gum from my pocket and pick some fuzz off it and hold it in my mouth till it softens. Let me see again, McMurphy says. How many of you birds will vote with me if I bring up that time switch again? About half the acutes nod yes. A lot more than would really vote. He puts his hat back on his head and leaves his chin in his hands. I tell you, I can't figure it out. Harden, what is wrong with you? For crying out loud, you afraid if you raise that hand, the old buzzard will cut it off. Harding lifts his one thin eyebrow. Perhaps I am. Perhaps I am afraid she'll cut it off if I raise it. What about you, Billy? Is that what you're scared of no i I don't think she'd d do d- d- do anything but he shrugs and sighs and climbs up on the big panel that controls the nozzle on the shower perches up there like a monkey but I don't think a vote would 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 do any good not in the l- long run it's just N- no use, Mac. Do any good. Oh wait, It do you, birds some good just to get the exercise lift in that arm. It's still a risk, my friend. She always has the capacity to make things worse for us. Baseball game isn't worth the risk, Harding says. Who the hell says so? Jesus, I haven't missed a World Series in seven years. Even when I was in the cooler one September, they let us bring in a TV and watch the series. They'd have a riot on their hands if they hadn't. I just may have to kick that damn door down and walk to some bar downtown to see the game, just me and my buddy Cheswick. Now that's a suggestion with a lot of merit, Harding says, tossing down his magazine. Why not bring that up for a vote in meeting tomorrow, Miss Ratchet? I'd like to move that the ward be transported en masse to the idle hour for beer and television. I'd second that notion, Cheswick says. Damn right. The hell with that en masse business, May Murphy says. I'm tired of looking at you bunch of old ladies. When me and Cheswick bust out of here, I think by go, we're going to nail the door shut behind us. You guys better stay behind. Your mama probably wouldn't let you cross the street. Yeah, is that it? Fredrickson has come up behind McMurphy. You're just going to raise one of those big He-Man boots of yours and kick down the door. A real tough guy. McMurphy don't hardly look at Fredrickson. He's learned that Fredrickson might act hard-boiled now and then, but it's an act that folds under the slightest scare. What about it, He-Man? Fredrickson keeps on. Are you going to kick that door down and show us just how tough you are? No, Fred. I guess not. I wouldn't want to scuff up my boot. Yeah? Okay, you've been talking so big. Just how would you go about busting out of here? Well, I guess I could knock the mesh out of one of these here windows with a chair. And then if I took a notion... Yeah. Yeah? You could? Could you? Knock one right out? Okay. Let's see you try. Come on, He-Man. I bet you $10 you can't do it. Don't bother trying, Mac, Cheswick says. Frederick knows you'll just break the chair and end up undisturbed. First day we arrived on here, we was given a demonstration about these screens. Especially made. A technician picked up a chair just like that one you got your feet on and beat the screen till the chair was nothing more but candle wood. Didn't hardly dent the screen. Okay, then, Murphy says, taking a look around him. I can see he's getting more interested. hope the big nurse isn't hearing this. He'll be up and disturbed in an hour. We need something heavier. How about a table? Same as the chair. Same wood, same weight. alright by bug-o. Let's just figure out what we have to toss through the screen to bust out. And if you birds don't think I'd do it if I ever got the urge... and you got another thing coming. Okay. Something bigger than a table or a chair if it was not, I might throw that fat cunt through it. He's hair enough. Much too soft, Harden says. He'd hit the screen and would dice him like an eggplant. How about one of the beds? A bed's too big, even if he could lift it. It wouldn't go through the window. I could lift it all right. Well, hell, right over there you are. That thing Billy's sitting on. That big control panel with all the handles and cranks. That's hard enough, ain't it? And damn well, should be heavy enough. Sure, Fredrickson says. That's the same as you kicking your foot through the steel door at the front. What be so wrong with using the panel? Don't look nailed down. No, it's not bolted. There's probably nothing holding it but a few wires. But look at it, for Christ's sakes. Everybody looks. The panel is steel and cement. Half the size of one of the tables. Probably weighs 400 pounds. Okay, I'm looking at it. It don't look any bigger than hay bales I've bucked onto truck beds. I'm afraid, my friend, that this contravenance will weigh a bit more than your bales of hay. About a quarter ton more, I'd bet, Fredrickson says. He's right, Mac, Cheswick says. It'd be awful heavy. Hell, you birds telling me you can't lift that dinky little gizmo? My friend, I don't recall anything about psychopaths being able to move mountains in addition to their other noteworthy assets. Okay, you say I can't lift it. Well, by God. Mary Murphy hops off the table and goes to peeling off his green jacket. The tattoos, sticking half out of his t-shirt, jump around the muscles on his arm. Then who's willing to lay five bucks... Nobody's gonna convince me I can't do something till I try it. Five bucks. McMurphy, this is as foolhardy as your bet about the nurse. Who got five bucks they wanna lose? You hit or you sit. The guys all go to signing liens at once. He's beat them so many times at poker and blackjack, they can't wait to get back at him. And this is a certain sure thing. I don't know what he's driving at. Broad and big as he is, it'd take three of him just to move that panel, and he knows it. He can just look at it and see he probably couldn't even tip it, let alone lift it, and take a giant to lift it off the ground. But when the acutes get all their IOUs signed, he steps up to the panel and lifts Billy Bibbit down off of it, spits in his big calloused palms, and slaps them together. Rolls his shoulders. Okay, stand out of the way. Sometimes, when I go to excertain myself, I use up all the air nearby and grow men faint from suffocation. Stand back. There's liable to be cracking cement and flying steel. Get the women and kids someplace safe. Stand back. By golly, he might just do it, Cheswick mutters. Sure, maybe he'll talk it off the floor, Fredrickson says. More likely, he'll acquire a beautiful hernia, Harding says. Come on now, McMurphy, quit acting like a fool. There's no man that can lift that thing. Stand back, sissies. Use my oxygen. McMurphy shifts his feet a few times to get a good stance, wipes his hands on his thighs again, then leans down and gets a hold of the levers on each side of the panel. When he goes to straining, the guys are hooting and kidding him. He turns loose and straightens up and shifts his feet around again. Giving up, Frederickson grins. Just limbering up. Here goes the real effort grabs the levers again, and suddenly nobody's hooting at him anymore. His arms commence to swell, and the veins squeeze up to the surface. He clenches his eyes, and his lips draw away from his teeth. His head leans back, and the tendons stand out like coiled ropes running from his heavy neck down both arms to his hands. His whole body shakes with strain as he tries to lift something he knows he can't lift. Something everybody knows he can't lift. Just for a second, when we hear his cement grind at our feet, we think, by golly, he might just do it. Then his breath explodes out of him, and he falls back, limp, against the wall. There's blood on the levers where he tore his hands. He pants for a minute against the wall, with his eyes shut. There's no sound but his scraping breath. Nobody's saying a thing. He opens his eyes and looks around at us. One by one, he looks at the guys, even at me. And then he fishes in his pocket for all the IOUs he won in the last few days at poker. He bends over the table and tries to sort them, but his hands are froze into red cloth and he can't work the fingers. Finally, he throws the whole bundle on the floor, probably forty, fifty dollars worth from each man, and turns and walks out of the tub room. He stops at the door and looks back at everybody standing around. But I tried, though. He says, God damn it, I sure as hell did that much now, didn't I? And walks out and leaves those stained pieces of paper on the floor for whoever wants to sort through them. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, please do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It is the easiest way to help get this podcast in front of as many people as possible and it would really make my day. And if you really want to support me, in the description box of uh, this YouTube video and in the description box of the podcast episode, you will find links to join the show and it's a way where you can just do a monthly donation to me and it is the easiest way to support me in turning this not just from a hobby but into my full-time job with as few ads as possible. Once again, thank you for listening and until next time, bye-bye.